As, a, as the First World War pressed on, Greece's King Constantine uh, and his son, the Crown Prince, insisted upon neutrality of Greece in the war. A younger son, Alexander, openly favored siding with Britain, uh, France, and the United States, and so he was odd man out in the family. Deposed by the Allied powers, Constantine and his eldest son had to yield succession to 20-something Alexander. As Alexander's reign began, uh, it started with great promise. He was able to recover lands on the Turkish mainland. Uh, he was uh, able to restore the hopes and dreams of a lot of his countrymen. But not long into his reign, the king was walking through the royal gardens and uh, he was walking his dog and a, a monkey, a diseased monkey, came after his dog and he was trying to save his dog from this diseased monkey and in the process was himself bitten by the monkey. He died a few weeks later on October 25th, 1920 at only 27 years old with so much promise. Allowed to return as the king of Hellenes, Constantine promptly launched the Greco-Turkish War that left a quarter of a million casualties, most of them civilians. And the newly annexed lands on the Turkish mainland were completely lost. That tragic episode led Winston Churchill to opine it was a monkey bite that caused the death of 250,000 people. I can understand why Plato didn't like history very much. It's full of monkey bites. He liked everything to be clean. You know, antiseptic, uh, totally controllable, mathematical purity. Everything had perfect edges. Uh, everything had a sort of uh, Le Corbusier uh, uh, way about it. <laughs> everything was exactly as it should be. No uh, uh, unclean lines, no embellishments, nothing to jump out and surprise you, no crazy monkey. As he himself said, historians study the lower world of mere appearances, whereas the philosopher gazes upon the eternal, timeless, unchanging realities. The author of The Republic was definitely a control freak. But we all are, especially in a world in which we can be assured that a McDonald's burger in L.A., as bad as it is, will taste just like one in Nairobi, or Shanghai, or the ATM will work here or in Boston. We want to know the secrets of a rational order we would even rather have no luck than good luck that has the possibility of having bad luck with it. We want to be in control. We want to know that our days are not going to have monkeys falling out of trees at us. But history is messy. It's not like logical truths. All unmarried men are bachelors. A triangle has three sides. History is messy. It's a, it, it's, it, you know, who could have predicted that a quarter of a million people would have died because a monkey bit Alexander? 
like generals with our maps spread over large tables. We moderns like to imagine that we're the masters of all we survey, got it all plotted. Life is rational, well-ordered. You can even go to the, a lot of local Christian bookstores and uh, find ways of managing your life, managing your family, managing your home, managing your finances, managing other people. Because history is messy, and why we don't like messiness, we want things to be predictable. There are predictable outcomes for routinized behavior. We know this. We have the statistics for it. Do X and Y happens. It's as sure as the law of gravity. That's really, I'm going to go to meddling here. It's really interesting to me how little the so-called faith healers actually believe in miracles. The way they talk, they're actually deists, it sounds like to me. If you do X, Y happens. God just set it up this way. And it's sort of as if, you know, in the meantime, God took a very long holiday. And uh, he set things up this way. And they just work this way. And it's not a miracle at all. It's simply the structure of the universe. Just think back to 2008. uh, As the subprime mortgage crisis spread like a cancer through the world's markets. The market was never benevolent. Everybody knew that. But at least it was rational. Predictable. And it's that rational and reliable order that we're looking for. Even if we're unpredictable, even if emotion gets in there as the fly in the ointment, at least the market is predictable. Though already a target of public frustration, insurance companies were seen as providing a safety net after the market proved not to be the uh, idol uh, who would save us especially when the massive boomer generation is the one that has been hit hardest, right at the age when it needs its retirement accounts and medical insurance, anxiety makes it difficult to move in any direction. We feel paralyzed. And one of the reasons is is psychological. We feel paralyzed because for the first time in our lives, the rational order isn't rational. It doesn't make sense. The failure of all of these rational processes to work in a rational and predictable way so that we can be in control of our lives and anticipate the moves is causing many to abandon the cult of the market for the cult of the state. And I'm not talking about whether you're right-wing or left-wing politically. I'm just talking about how we turn good things into idols. Now, a state will provide that regularity that reliability, that security that the market hasn't provided for us. We don't want good luck. We don't want bad luck. We want to have the whole world in our hands. I'm neither qualified nor called to talk about any kind of economic or political solution to this problem. But there are deep spiritual and theological issues that underlie it. The first is is the way in which we even take good things, reason, order, 
predictability, especially when we're in vocations that require that. This is by no means uh, an invitation to allow preachers to come uh, into uh, 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 the, the great halls of Wall Street and uh, uh, pretend that they can manage the economy. Uh, ooh, what a horrible thought. I can't, I can't manage my own checkbook. Uh, but one thing we love about science is that it promises rational explanations and predictable formulas. So when circumstances jar our faith in the ordinary ways of calculative reason, many in our culture today turn to spiritual phenomena like witches. I'm sure you're aware of that. It's really remarkable uh, when you mention this sometimes uh, in, in other contexts, people have never heard of it. They don't believe it. They don't believe a word that you're saying, but certainly, especially, it, it's interesting, in the, the most highly concentrated, well-educated urban areas of the world, there's a massive growth in psychic interest. Spiritual technology. If we can't have economic technology saving us, if we can't be saved by insurance companies, if we can't have our rational order and be in charge through our confidence in the regularities of that which can be seen, then we will turn to that which cannot be seen. And if people will give us principles for owning that and managing that and running that, we'll be happy. It's the same control freakishness that leads us to the one as well as the other. The language of New Agers and TV evangelists even appeals to pseudoscientific vocabulary. Just learn the secret principles and you can control your future. It's amazing how many intelligent people today are, are going to psychics. Uh, wanting that kind of control over their future. Wanting that kind of predictability. And, and, and sort of defending it with a kind of pseudoscientific veneer. One report I came across... Uh, talked about how French President Sarkozy is uh, very much in, into this and sort of, sort of uh, quietly uh, visits uh, mediums to find out what he should do next. Uh, an interesting article in Time magazine was uh, titled, An Anxious London Flocks to Psychics. I was in a state of anxiety, says a regular client, a financial trader, recalling her first consultation with Nina Ashby, one of nine practitioners who collectively constitute the eponymous sisters. Uh, Nina is very positive, adds the client, originally from New York City and describing herself as clairvoyant. Uh, Ashby plies her rare gifts from a booth draped in a heavy velvet that can't quite contain her high volume buoyancy. People come to me to be uplifted, not to be brought down, she says. Isn't that interesting? People come to me to be uplifted, not to be brought down. I can think of certain well-known preachers who say that that's exactly why they accentuate the positive. And you scratch your head and you say, well, what about the monkey bites? What about what happens when things don't go so well? And, and furthermore, are you really connecting with reality? How rational are you? How reasonable are you if you're basically telling people what they want to hear? 
All of this supports the generalization that pagan thought basically moves back and forth between rationalism and irrationalism. They're two sides of the same coin. When one god fails, we switch to another. But for exactly, for exactly the same reason, control. We want to be in control. It's karma in Buddhism. I'll get to how we do it in Christianity in a minute. It's, but in, in, in Buddhism, it's, it's called karma. Uh, there is no good luck. <laughs> you, you, you get what's coming to you. It, everything is arranged in such a way that if you do good, it will come back to you. And of course, in Judaism and Christianity, we, we uh, have what you reap that you will sow. There's nothing wrong with this principle. This principle is built into nature. It's built into creation. It's how God created the universe. It is rational. There is a rational order. Ordinarily, you reap what you sow. Ordinarily, you do good to others and it comes back to you. That's how it's set up. That's how God created the world. Before there was this thing called the fall. And then the question after the fall, after God actually provides for our salvation in a way that we never could possibly have predicted. Unless the prophets have foretold it. And even the prophets searched diligently to understand what they were saying. To understand what they were prophesying. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth. What or who is Lord? Christ or the elementary principles? We only picture idolatry as something evil. Something that is essentially, intrinsically awful. But most of our idols are actually good gifts of God that we have ranked poorly. (laughs) Good gifts that we have turned into idols. Superstitious attachment to things that have their place but are out of place in our lives. And the phrase that the New Testament uses for this bondage is the elementary principles of the world. Stoicheia to cosmo. The elementary principles of this world. It's a great phrase that Paul uses several times. Originally coming from Stoicism, it meant by Paul's day, basically those forces of natural law. And sometimes people tried to manipulate those forces of natural law, or or rather step into the rigid predictability of those laws through astrology and, and, and by other means. But... In any case, it is these underlying elementary principles and structures, the basic principles of natural law. Yin and yang. Karma. You reap what you sow. It's not wrong as a generalization, as I say. The problem is that we imagine that if we follow the right principles, then we'll live the good life. The ancient Stoics identified God with reason, the whole of which everything in existence is a part. Reason is shot through all of reality. There is that 
that seed of reason that oozes from every pore of reality. And our job is to find out, to discover what those elementary principles are and then live accordingly. The Apostle Paul warned the Colossian church against being, quote, taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world or the elementary principles of this age. Stoicheia to cosmo. Paul uses the term also in Galatians. But here it, it has a specifically Jewish Old Covenant context. He says, in the same way also, this is in Galatians 4, verses 3 through 5. So in Colossians, it has a more Gentile connotation with the, the Stoic view of elementary principles. But this is what's kind of arresting. In Galatians, he's talking mainly to Jewish Christians or to also to Gentile Christians who have succumbed to the idea that you have to first of all become Jewish before you can become a Christian. And here's what Paul says. In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Stoicheia to Cosmo again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. What is amazing here is that Paul is actually identifying Gentile idolatry of natural law with the Judaizing heresy, uh, identifying the Mosaic law with the gospel. You could imagine what they would have been thinking. I mean, the last thing they want to do is something Gentile. The last thing they want to do is something Greek. But Paul says, this was my point in Romans 1 through 3. We're all under the law, condemned. Jew, Gentile, it's not the people who have Judeo-Christian values. It's the people who have fulfilled them who are justified. And so here we are all condemned by the same law, whether it's written on the conscience or on tablets of stone. The stoicheia to cosmo, whether in our conscience or in tablets of stone. Paul says that those today who place their faith in their own obedience to the Mosaic law or to the powers and principalities are no better off than the Gentile pagans. In either case, they're enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. In Galatians and Colossians, Paul uses this phrase negatively in his polemics, not because the stoicheia to cosmo are evil or wrong or bad, but because apart from Christ, because we're fallen, we are in slavery to the law. That's the torture of it. We're enslaved to a law we can never fulfill, and yet we can't give it up. 
Formerly, Paul says, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn your back and go again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So here's his argument. You weren't even Jews, but Gentiles who were enslaved to idols and these basic principles of natural law. Christ freed you from that, and now you want to be enslaved again to the basic principles of the Sinai law. In either case, you've abandoned Christ. You are slaves, and you want to be slaves. And so in Galatians 4, Christ is the liberator from the tyranny of the law because he was born under the law, fulfilled it, bore our curse for not fulfilling it, was raised for our justification, while in Colossians 2, Paul warns believers not to be held captive by a philosophy that would return them to slavish devotion to controlling their destiny through ascetic legalism. For in Christ, Paul says, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul says, don't be captive to the elementary principles of the world any longer. Christ is the one who has all rule and authority. It's not a principle, but a person, Christ, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the Logos. God has baptized us into Christ, Paul says, we are made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So why would you want to entrust your lives, your destinies to the market or to the state, or to the Mosaic law, or to the little voice within, or whatever form your determination for mastery might take. Why, Paul says, return again to slavery when Christ has made you free. If with Christ, he adds, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive, to it? Do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the actual indulgence of the flesh. Instead, he says, you are to put on Christ. And so to conclude, basically, Grace is a lucky break. It radically transforms that space in pagan thinking for luck. Especially the Stoics, 
especially Plato and his followers, they didn't want to have any place really for this, but people realized in their daily lives that there was stuff they couldn't account for. There was stuff that they couldn't predict. There, was, there were things that they couldn't manage, things they couldn't control. Monkeys fell out of trees and bit people. They knew that. What do you call that? Well, you call it, they, they said, we'll call it luck. And there are comparisons between luck, good luck, and grace. It, it, it's the unpredictable. <laughs> It's that which cannot be managed. Oh, it's planned, but not by us. It's interesting that John Calvin said, uh, there's nothing wrong with that word fortuitous or lucky. We can use that word because from our vantage point, things are purely accidental very often. They have no appearance other than that of chance, randomness. Of course, they're planned from God's vantage point, but from ours, it, it just, it's, it, it's a stroke of good luck. It's something that we can't control. That's where grace isn't rational. Now, when we say grace isn't rational, we're not saying the gospel is not intelligible. We have the best case for historical events of any religion that bothers to make historical claims at all. It's it's reasonable, but it's not rational in the sense that it makes sense to embrace something that tells you you're saved precisely by letting go. Guy was climbing a rock, uh, uh, rock climbing, and he fell one one day, and he uh, he he nearly fell to his death. But he reached out, grabbed a branch, and he broke his fall, saved his life. But he realized he couldn't pull himself up, and like a lot of people in those circumstances, suddenly became religious and he looked up and he says, is there anybody up there who can help me? Much to his surprise, a voice came booming back, said, I am here, I can help you, but first you have to let go of the branch. And uh, he said, he looked around and thought about it for a minute, sort of did cost-benefit analysis and he looked back up and said, is there anybody else up there who can help me? You know, that's, that's, that's the thing that's the hardest for us, to let go of that kind of control. It's not that there is no control. It's that we have to let go of it. We have to say, Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. I gladly entrust my future to him because the powers of this present age have not treated me very well. They do not deserve my worship. I do not entrust my lives to them, however they may promise me rational order, certainty about my portfolio, and absolute confidence that my kids will be able to go to college. God comes and says, those are your problems, not mine. You you come with your expectations and your long list of the things that I need to do to take over from the market. No, you don't understand. It's not a different Lord. It's a a completely different accounting structure (laughs) that we need. For all of their differences, what 
luck and grace share is a recognition of the exception to the rule. That's what the gospel is. It's the exception to the rule. It's what shouldn't have happened but did. It is that great line that we read in Ephesians 2 where Paul says, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath. We were this, we were that. But God, who is rich in mercy, even while we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. It's that but God that is the good monkey bite. (laughs) It's the good luck. It's that, wow, who could have predicted that? Who could have predicted that at the very moment when God seemed to have lost the game to, to, to Satan, the powers of death and hell and the Romans, at that very moment, God was triumphing over those powers in him. Who could have thought? Paul said if they had known that, they wouldn't have done it. The wise of this age, Paul says, cannot even come close to the foolishness of God. The wisdom of God in his foolishness is wiser than all of the sages who have graced our history. We may not know God's will about where we should live or work, whom we should marry. We may not predict with certainty the next four months in the Middle East or the Eurozone. Who knows? And yet we know that God works together all things for good because we know what God was doing at the cross. Because there where it seemed, where it seemed, that the stoicheia to cosmo had fated Jesus to an untimely and sorrowful death. There God was at work reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us, and then raising his son from the dead as the first fruits of those who sleep. Crazy, isn't it? <laughs> Irrational. Doesn't make any sense. Not because... Not because it's contradictory, not because it is inherently illogical, not because it is historically unverifiable, but because it flies in the face of our most basic control mechanisms, the flight or fight characteristics of our species. We have to let go. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. But we have to let go. And when we let go, we find, we discover that God is worth the trust. That he who raised Jesus from the dead will by that same spirit raise our mortal bodies. Because there really is a God of grace and mercy in the world. Even in a world that makes all sorts of promises that it cannot keep. Thanks. I'm told we're having a little bit of uh, Q&A. Or at least Q. (laughs) 
Oh, where did all you people come from? Um, do we have any questions for Dr. Horton? Any, any thoughts to share? Yes. So in terms of percentage, faith and action, percentages, 50% faith, 50% action, 90% faith, 10% action, <laughs> That's because great, I'm going to sit yeah. there and I'm going to pray and I'm going to light candles and I'm going to submit to God what I want. And then I'm going to go for the rest of the day and do something about it. Right? Thank you. That's, that is a fantastic question. Um, Actually, it's, yeah, it's, it, that, that way of thinking about percentages is, is it, is still part of this calculable kind of, kind of thinking, I think, that, that, uh, that Paul is talking about here. Yes, of course, uh, we, we, uh, need to plan our lives. We need to, uh, you know, I have four kids. I want to figure out how they're going to go to college. Uh, we have to be concerned about those things. We have, we have imperatives and exhortations in Scripture that we have to take seriously. But the point along here is not that 5 or 10%, maybe it's a, it's, it's, it's a small percentage, but there's this percentage that is in our hands and the rest is in God's hands. I That's the the paradigm we have to get rid of. We have to surrender that and say, it's 100% God's. Now, it's 100% my responsibility to live responsibly in the world. But it's also 100% but God. Uh, you know, I, I at the end of the day, at the end of the day, after all of my planning, yes, I have insurance. Yes, uh, I pay taxes. yes. But at the end of the day, I have given up on those processes having anything whatsoever to do with my ultimate destiny. It's, it, 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 that's why I think good luck is a great uh, category for, for grace. Of course, it's not exactly the same. But precisely because it's something we can't manage or control, it's not 10%, it's not 5%. There's zero percent possibility that you or I could be saved. Zero percent possibility. And that's why the disciples said the whole thing about uh, harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than a cannibal to pass through uh, 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 the eye of a needle. The disciples said, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I think we just have to surrender the whole calculative. Calculative reason has its place. But in our culture, calculative reason has become the only kind of reason, the only kind of activity, the only kind of, of, of human way of justifying reality and truth. Uh, hi, I just have a question about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, the, the idea that um, we have to let go uh, you know that that, that very uh, revolutionary idea um, of our desire to kind of be the master and, and the control of our own universe. What do I do when my the thing I want to master becomes the art of letting go? Becomes the sorry. Because like what what happens when I'm in the place where I'm like what I what I want to do is master the art of letting go, 
and uh-huh. uh, what, like, what do I? Because that—that's something that that I I deal with. Yeah, such a great point. Uh, it, yeah, it, it it is it is exactly the thing that Jacob was talking about, uh, where you know this can become a shtick. Where now uh, th- we're so good at becoming lawyers, uh, inner inner lawyers, when it comes to this stuff. That we can even turn grace, the gospel justification, into another form of works righteousness. I was talking about this uh, with Elise Fitzpatrick, uh, who wrote a book on Give Them Grace you know, for Children. We were laughing about this because very often people will uh, come up at, at, at the end of one of her conferences where she's really emphasizing that grace, uh, uh, parents have to let go in, in this way of thinking that they are they are going to save their children and uh, that they, if they follow the right principles and so forth. And in, invariably, she says, the hardest thing is to, is to not make parents feel guilty for not giving them grace. <laughs> okay, what about all those years I didn't give them grace? Oh, am I giving them grace now? Oh, wow, I don't know if I'm giving them enough grace. You know... That's just the way, that's the way we work. And we just, you know, stop it. <laughs> and then, then, well, am I stopping it? Oh, it's just, it's, it's infinite. It's infinite. Uh, we just have to realize we do that. That too is a sin that is forgiven for Christ's sake. And with that forgiveness, let's move on and, uh, and, and, and uh, say, I, Lord, I believe, help my, my unbelief. Yes, coming off the comment you made about uh, living responsible and considering uh, what is our ability to control ourselves um, and a person's ability, whether a Christian or a non-Christian, to uh, control ourselves not to sin and specifically maybe uh, maybe speak toward uh, we stand before God, another human, and we vow uh, certain vows in marriage to not do certain things. Mm-hmm. Can you comment on uh, a person's ability to uphold and control themselves to do that? Sure. Well, that's a that's a big one. Uh, I think there are a couple seminars uh, t- today or uh, and tomorrow that will be more helpful than anything I can say here. Uh, yes, uh, and see that's that's exactly it. This is not to say that we should be passive. Actually, it creates a kind of activity uh, we, where we, we find parts of us that are alive that never were alive before. Uh, you know, we're, we, we begin to realize that there's activity in, in regions of our existence that we didn't even know we had. But it, it, it is, the, the, the point here is not that we're not active. The point here is where is our safety net? Where your safety net is, there is your God. Is our safety net our ability to make money and provide? Is our ability, is our, is our security our IRA? Is our security insurance? Is, is our security our uh, prowess uh, in whatever calling that uh, we're engaged in and our ability to keep that going? Where is our, where's, where's the net when we fall? Whoever's arms you fall into when you can't turn anywhere else, that's your God. And so the, 
The point isn't to be active on the high wire. No, be active. uh, But but at at the end of the day, uh, everything that we do, everything that we do uh, is going to fall short of the glory of God and need God's forgiveness, even in our marriage. Yes, we can... We keep our vows. We, we're called to keep our vows. But as, as you know, in our marriages, uh, we have to confess our sins to each other all the time. And so if God were to rank our marriages according to what his intention is in those vows, we would all be adulterers. What does Paul mean by Jesus being triumphing over the powers and making spectacle of them? Because a lot of New Testament scholars will talk about these powers and principalities as institutional structures like the synagogue and the Roman Empire. And you made reference to the elemental powers. So I'm wondering at one level, what's the relationship between the elemental powers and the powers and principalities understood as demons entrenched in structures like Wall Street and the political rulers. And if Jesus uh, is victorious in this moment of grace on the cross and unveils the spectacle of these powers in this Christus, Victor atonement theory that according to Gustav Alain is like the first thousand years of Christianity, then how do we, how do we today participate in that struggle against powers and principalities when in some sense the victory has been won in Christ and there's this deep tragic kind of blue note undertone in history because you talked about the, the monkey bite and that kind of struggle in history, but with the tragic dimension in history, how can we rush to resurrection in, in, in a discourse of victory from this bent and broken place and yet still participate in that struggle today? Yeah, thanks, Peter. I, uh, well, first of all, I think we, in, in my interpretation, at least, uh, when Paul speaks of the uh, elementary uh, principles and powers uh, and the powers and principalities uh, we read about in Ephesians, it's not uh, the, 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 the first thing I think we have to be careful of is lodging it in a particular institution or even a particular empire like the Roman Empire uh, as if we could find a scapegoat for our own sins. We can transfer our guilt to another. I just have been amazed by this debate on our White Horse Sin blog. I blogged about, gave some examples. The, 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 uh, another election campaign affords untold opportunities to uh, abuse the scriptures. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, on the right and the left, it's just bizarre. And I gave examples on the right and the left of how various passages are being interpreted. Uh, and one of, one of my favorites was uh, a, a writer who will re- remain nameless uh, for whom the rich young ruler, uh, Jesus' engagement with the rich young ruler, uh, is paradigmatic for 
uh, the uh, tax structure for, uh, uh, in the, in the debates on the campaign trail. And uh, go sell everything you have and give it uh, to, to the poor. And uh, that, was the, that was the call. This is what uh, uh, Congress should do. And it was all these terrible rich people. Uh, and like, wow, uh, what, a, what a way of missing the whole point. You are the rich young ruler. And so am I. We're the rich young ruler. <laughs> it's so easy to, uh, and then it was done exactly in different texts on the right in a, in a very analogous way. It's very easy for us to say the powers and principalities are the Democrats or the powers and principalities are the Republicans. The powers and principalities are the rich. Powers and principalities are the poor. Powers and principalities are the Roman Empire or the American Empire or this, that, or the other thing. That is dangerous because it means that we exonerate ourselves. We're the ones without blood on our hands. And the whole point of these passages is to say that the powers and principalities are what we yield our allegiance to, which Christ has come to break. And he reigns. He is king. He is Christus Victor. He has broken the power, but the way he broke the power in Colossians and triumphed over them, making them a public spectacle, is by canceling the debt of record that was against us. Only if that is taken care of is Christ the victor over everything at the heart of the problems in the universe. So this is just a, um, actually a complimentary point to what you were saying, but um, coming from a point of view of, of ancient Greek, the word stoicheia does, as you probably know, come from ancient physics and is a, is a word that is associated with the smallest pieces of the fabric of the universe. It's in a, a word that Empedocles uses and other ancient scientists. And I think to some degree... Well, so it's a physics word, but in the ancient world, physics and metaphysics weren't so neatly separated as we have them today. And um, I think it's really, to some degree, Paul in Galatians 4, at least, is accepting uh, a sort of stoicist worldview. Uh, but he's arguing that um, Christ is sort of the creator of that worldview and is coming in and is completely breaking it. Mm -hmm. uh, he has power over the very fabric of the world. It's a, it's a physics argument. And so like a medium today would be part of that world in the ancient world as well, because she's calling upon these stoicheia to do things. Like she's mixing up the fabric of the world to make physical things happen. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure that Paul would be saying that those things don't have actual some power, right. right? I mean, spiritualism has some kind of connection to the fabric of the world. It's not just hocus pocus. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not advocating going to a medium, okay? <laughs> but at the same time, like, I think that there's a very real kind of physics, metaphysics argument that's going on here that's separate to some degree, though couched in Galatians, of course, in the discussion of the law. Yes, 
thank, thank you, Scott. I uh, couldn't agree more, and uh, I, I think that the it, it actually it, it is of more consequence, of more force, when we realize that the Stoicheia to Cosmu are actually legit. That Paul actually does believe that they're legit. Uh, you know, it's not this antithesis between natural law and creation over here and the gospel and Christ's atoning work. Uh, it is, this is the way it should be. But because of the fall, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And so in a, in a real sense, you say, here's, here's what human beings have done with the freedom. And now something's going to have to happen that, that isn't provided for in creation. There was no emergency valve alarm uh, in creation. There was no rescue plan in creation. And so uh, the rescue plan is announced after the fall. And, and uh, now in our fallen condition, these good things that God set up condemn us if we submit ourselves to them ultimately. These very good things of creation become our, our destruction if we look to them as if they could solve the problems that we've brought upon the world when in fact they can only tell us you break yourself against me. Um, you know, we don't really break these laws any more than we break the moral law. The law breaks us. We, we break ourselves against it. It's, it's doing fine. These laws are still operating. These laws are still operating. But, uh, you know, if we you jump, jump off uh, the uh, top of an office building, you'll go, you'll, you know, gravity will have its way. Uh, and these are good things. These are all good gifts of God. But with our free, freedom, we have misused our freedom in relation to them. And that's why, they, why they, they cannot provide redemption. They were never, they were never created and set up to provide redemption, but only to provide order. Problem is, we don't think we need redeeming. And so that's where I think Paul, Paul is saying, know what the law can do, whether it's the Mosaic law or the basic principles of natural law. Know what they can do. They can do a lot, but they cannot rescue those who have broken them. Uh. Mike, can you repeat that question? Sure. Uh, the what's what is the tweet uh, takeaway um, from this? Really, it's uh, let us let us succumb to the. In extraordinary, the, 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 the extraordinary impossibility that God has not only made possible, but has actually secured in history in Jesus Christ. I don't know how tweetable that is, but. I'm going to offer this up as a take-home nugget. The way I like to look at this this beautiful message is we have been set free to lavish in God's grace. Lavish. 
Thank you, Morris. Can I just while you're while you're uh, walk, walking over to Tim? Yeah, uh, that's the thing. You know, when you live in a world of fear and scarcity, then it's every man for himself and God for us all, and it's it's terrifying. And you demand things of the people around you, your your employers or your employees, your spouse, your parents, your children. You you demand things. Uh, of them that are just kind of clingy because you're, you're fearful because everything's scarce. The world is basically created by a malevolent deity. Whereas in the, in, in the wonderful, the God we meet, especially in Jesus Christ, but already in creation, the God that we meet in scripture is very liberal. It, he didn't create a world of scarcity but a world of abundance, liberal generosity. And uh, I love the line where he says to the disciples, it, uh, oh, and, and it's a feast. The kingdom of God is a feast. Everybody is invited. Oh, and by the way, invite the people who can't repay you. Boy, you talk about the logic of, of natural law. There, there's a logic there that says, well, invite, invite the boss over for dinner. Jesus says, no, invite, the, invite precisely the ones who cannot do anything for you. You say, well, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good principle for building a church. And Jesus said, how do you think you got in? Mike, thanks for the, the great talk. Uh, I have a question. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book, The Black Swan heard of it uh the okay. the impact of the highly improbable it's a it's an epistemologist nasim and talib wrote this book about highly uh unpredictable kinds of events in in commerce and technology they're they're rare they're unpredictable they're outliers and he says his his philosophy is based on the idea that those outliers have a predictable response then by human beings namely that they come up with a very simplistic explanation for those unpredictable events uh, could could you then say that your your argument of the gospel of grace now becomes that rare black swan so maybe it happened maybe jesus did indeed die and there was indeed a resurrection but that our entire theory of justification by faith based on that is now our very simplistic explanation of that rare outlier event how would you respond to that mm. wow I don't know. I'll have to think about that. That's a that's a great question. Um, well, first of all, the justification by faith. The only thing I, I I can say right now about it, justification isn't an explanation uh, of the cross and the resurrection. Just justification is what the cross and the resurrection, uh, what what is accomplished by the by the cross and the resurrection. Um, I think it's, it, yeah, it, it is, God achieved something here. It's not necessarily an explanation uh, of a conundrum as it is a, a solution to a problem. But I need to think more about that. It's a good question. Peter. Uh, thank you uh, for your 
insight. I was touched by your beginning where you made reference to the theological implications of our political situation. Uh, you also used history in quoting Winston Churchill, who of course said, if we don't know history, we'll have to dread and repeat it. Um, not many people know that yesterday was Patriot's Day. It wasn't mentioned anywhere around here, but that was the beginning of our nation. So in light of all this, in light of the conflict and the rising boiling point of our political situation, what would you specifically say to a response as we go through this political season through November, as we as Christians, how we should couch these questions? Uh, sorry, how we should couch which questions specifically? The to po political debate in general. Well, I think uh, here, once again, categories are so crucial and, and categories that we've inherited both on the Lutheran and Reformed side of the aisle uh, would be uh, distinction between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdoms of this age. Uh, it's neither that these kingdoms are, uh, are, are totally opposed, uh, you know, if, you're, if you belong to one, you can't belong to another. No, we have an over, an, a big area of overlap here between these two kingdoms. We're citizens of, of both. But uh, uh, we, we do not, we, we, we cannot uh, uh, imagine that we are building the kingdom of God through our political uh, uh, agendas. Um, that's the first thing that we have to, there's an idolatry, again, both on the left and the right that, we use idolatry casually. Here, I think it's really justified. There is an idolatry in this country about politics, and I think it is driven by that. We're going to screw down order here, and we're going to finally have order. Modernity has done this and left m millions in graves over tightening the screws on order. And, and uh, I... I yeah, I think that we have to be very careful as Christians of not giving the impression that if we just have the right people in, in office, uh, then the kingdom of God will come. The good news is, as Jesus says over and over again to his disciples, fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you a kingdom. Or in Hebrews 12, since we are receiving a kingdom, that cannot be shaken. Let us worship God with reverence and awe. What the world needs most right now is a worshiping community that, that worships in, with reverence and awe in gratitude for what God has done, receiving a kingdom instead of trying to build one.